Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, good friend of the program. We're glad to have him back. His friends call him Gary, but on his driver's license, it says Gary and Frankel because it's all fancified like that. How are you, sir? Great to have you back on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, we're living the dream, man. This is romping in the high cotton here. Um, you're writing in Ordinary-Times.com, a publication of notes. <laughs> that uh, here's what you did. And I like when you do this. We took an issue that's really loud, turned down the noise. You went to a historical example to try to deal with what we saw with the Speaker of the House fight and now the Rules Committee package that's gone through and all the various committee assignments. We're watching what's going on in Congress. Well, this is the 118th Congress. We've done this 118 times. Well, right around that ninth or 10th time, you went back to that as an example, then maybe some of the folks in Congress now could maybe learn some. And it's a name that people kind of don't think about because his dad was more famous than he was. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the career of John Quincy Adams, he's most famous for having a presidency that was meh at best. But what you really have is decades of dedicated public service by somebody who truly cared about his country, but maybe just wasn't particularly suited to an executive role. But when you look at his service within the cabinet as Secretary of State, when you look at his time about as a diplomat traveling around Europe, and most importantly, I think, when you look at his almost two decades uh, in the House of Representatives and his older age, you find quite a bit to glean because even with, you know, the different society, the different moral values, uh, different policy issues, people are still people. Conservatives are still conservatives. I think there's a lot that you can learn from. Gary and Frankel joining us. Okay, let's start right there, though, because the terms have changed. What yep. a conservative now and what one back then was, they didn't really use that term. But they had things like federalist. Um, they had things like people that were in the Constitution. They had people that were following Jefferson. They had people that followed Adams. They had people that followed different founding fathers. They had their own cults of personality, just like we do now with our political figures. There was a lot going on there. John Quincy Adams, of course, has got the added problem of he's just he's not only in got one of those names. You're John Adams's son. That's got a little bit of weight to it, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. He struggled with that throughout his life. Um, obviously, you can't diagnose someone who's been dead for almost 200 years. Uh, but a lot of scholars seem to think from his diary entries, from some of his letters, that he may have struggled with chronic depression. And for somebody who felt that they had the weight of the world on their shoulders, that must have been really hard to deal with. But um, much like his father, in fact, Quincy looked at all of the cults of personality that were surrounding him. He looked at the party man sort of environment and said, no, I'm going to go my own way and do what I think is right. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. Before we lionize him too much, because I do think there's something to really take from his congressional career, and we'll lay that out in just a second. 
this was a different era, you know, where especially his congressional career where you're talking about, you know, the, the turn of the century, the 1800s, his presidency into the 1820s and 1830s. We're starting to get into the national issues that lead to the Civil War. We're talking about things like slavery, like the North is growing faster than the South, which is more agriculture and the North is becoming industrial. A lot of the things that shaped our country for the next hundred years through the Civil War, through the Reconstruction, he lived to see that stuff. But that also meant he had some flaws, not just as a man of his time, but just, you know, he was a human being. He had problems. So before we lionize him, there's some issues here as well we got to address. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the commenters on the uh, Ordinary Times article did a really good job of pointing this out. Um, he, for most of his life, and I focused much of my article talking about the slavery issue, for most of his life, Quincy made it clear that he was an abolitionist to a certain extent, but he was worried about his friendships. He was worried about his relationships. He was worried um, about what the political consequences of standing too harshly against slavery would be from both a personal and a broader standpoint. So this was not a stand that he always took. It was a decision that he cons that he consciously made later. But one thing I think is important is that when people do make mistakes, when people do become victims of their time and circumstance, or perhaps even their personal failings, and then turn around later in life and become what they should have been all along, there's something worth studying there. And if you dismiss somebody's actions entirely based on what they did in their youth or what the values present in that society were in particular, then there's very little that you can learn from history in general other than just patting yourself on the back and saying how much better you are. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. One thing you pointed out in the piece here, this is kind of unique in American history. He went to Congress as his retirement job. He actually called it his retirement job in his own personal writings. This is after he's been president. Look, he could have just sat there, punched the clock, not done a whole lot, got reelected probably for life and so on and so forth. The lesson you're drawing here, though, is that's not what he did, though. Exactly. Um, and he made a point of really leading the fight against slavery for the first time as for the first time in his life um, through his presidency. And that keep in mind, that was decades of public service. At that point, he started becoming a public servant when I think he was 13. Um, he had mostly been in the background of that debate whenever it did come up. He made it clear in his personal communications and his private writings that he was against slavery and that he abhorred the practice. But he was not on the front lines leading the fight against it for political or social, perhaps economic reasons. It would have caused some strife with his family um, because his wife and her family had a background in slaveholding. But he did not choose to go quietly into his retirement. That was, if anything, when he was most active in a broader sense because he felt empowered to finally fight for causes that he believed in. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. It's interesting because when you started drawing the comparison to the today, um, we talk about the grifter class. You know, I've been joking about um, the hardcore right that made so much noise and speak. I've been calling them the raucous caucus just because I like the alliteration of it. But it's fun. You know, they're, they they just they're chaos makers. They're crazy yes. makers. I get pushback sometime on social media about using the term grifter for certain people. I use it for people that I think deserve it, who are clearly you know using a business model. Here's the thing. Grifters aren't new. And his 17 years in Congress, along with abolition and some of the other stuff, 
John Quincy Adams spent a lot of time on what we would now call grifters of his day, didn't he? He did because he needed their votes in order to get what he wanted passed, which was a, a repeal of the gag rule, which prevented any discussion uh, of slavery. He needed them on his side. So, and this is something that he really struggled with in his lot of his a lot of his private writings because he had a what he considered to be a moral, virtuous purpose in mind, but he knew that he would have to play politics and convince people who were only out to increase their own powers, just narrow self-interest. He had to get them on his side somehow. And that that meant making promises that he may or may not have been able to keep. That meant um, having to play ball on some other issues that maybe he wasn't quite comfortable with. Um, The legislature in general is ugly. And in order to get stuff done, you have to roll with the punches sometimes. And it it hurt him some and may have caused a flare of his depression at some point. Yeah. And you touched on it in the piece in this way is that, look, this is take the politics out for a second. This is basic human stuff right here. This is deep philosophy, kind of how do you live your life stuff? He talked about it. He's talking about, look, I understand the human heart, including my own, is deceitful and wicked. But we have this virtuous goal, but we have to go through politics to achieve those goals. This is a universal principle that whether it's, you know, 1823 or 2023, this is the same stuff we're still struggling with. Absolutely. And one thing that I think is important at looking at these types of universal principles, especially as they apply to people in the past who considered themselves to live by those principles, is that most, if not everybody, is going to fail at at least some point. Maybe there's no chance for us to ever be perfect at it at all. Um, There's been considerable debate about that concept in philosophy for thousands of years. But whether or not it's possible to be perfect in a virtuous sense, there's some pretty strong agreement that it's worth pursuing. And even if you fail and you struggle as you're pursuing it, that doesn't make the pursuit any less worthwhile. So I think it's equally worthwhile to look at people who made an honest effort in that pursuit, even if they didn't live up to even their own expectations, much less so of modern society, which has very different values in some instances. Gary and Frankel joining us. Let's go through the history of this a little bit, because I think there's another universal principle here. People know about, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves, Emancipation Proclamation, right? We know Reconstruction was a mess, uh, was not handled correctly. We'll be real kind of just leave it at that. And that led to this Jim Crow, which led to the Civil Rights Movement, which led us to where we are today. These things all happened in a sequence. The sequence before the Civil War that we don't talk about as much, and before you get to the Civil War, and before you get to Dred Scott, and before you get to even something like Amistad, which is known because of the movie and such, before all of that, there was a fight over this gag rule. Why was that so important? Because it's hard for us to understand the House of Representatives was not allowed to discuss slavery. That sounds amazing, but if you don't have that fight, and John Quincy Adams and others don't have that fight, 
none of the rest of that that led up to emancipation happens. Walk us through that because that's an important piece of history that I don't think we talk about enough. Exactly. Um, everybody knew from the very beginning of this country that slavery was going to be a controversial issue. Um, that's why they wrote into the Constitution that they would just leave it for 20 years and then push the problem over to 1808. And then after that, you have debates run up every five or 10 years. Sometimes the slavery issue would take a backseat to particular military or economic matters, but it was always there. It was always the elephant in the room, and nobody really liked talking about that because there was a broader interest in economic development or preserving the Union. Uh, during the Jacksonian era, you have that massive fight over the bank, uh, which continued into the early part of the Van Buren presidency, but it's in the Van Buren presidency that things really start coming to a head on the slavery issue. And the gag rule was instituted in, in an attempt to sort of replicate what happened during the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutional Convention and just push it another decade or so, make it somebody else's problem. Uh, we don't have to talk about this right now. But for those like John Quincy Adams, who saw slavery as um, correctly as this horrible moral wrong, just pushing it off to the side and making it somebody else's problem was just not acceptable anymore. Yeah. There's another one of those universal principles is kicking the can down the road on an important issue always makes it worse. Yep. Gary and Frankel joining us. Here's another piece of that history that people lose and especially the lost cause movement. And people, <laughs> this came in towards, you know, Quincy, let's talk the 1830. If you look at history through the 1830s, once the gag order came down through the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, the slavery laws in the North got lax and lax. And there was a lot of abolition and the movement. And in the South, they started getting worse. They started taking away the legal right to emancipate slaves. They took a, they had court fights in the Carolinas that the Quakers couldn't come in and free people legally. That's part of this history, too, is like there was an after effect to this was like, Oh, no, the people that wanted fought harder and the people that wanted to keep slavery kept fighting, too. This wasn't an inertia thing. This was an active fight. Yeah, and it was a brutal fight at that. Um, you don't get something like Bleeding Kansas, for instance, for instance, between two groups that are having a mild disagreement with one another, even if it's on some kind of moral issue. You get Bleeding Kansas from something that's deeply fractious for something that concerns some of our innermost moral values. And in the case of the South, an exploitative economic system that they desperately wanted to preserve because they incorrectly saw no other option. I'm, they were wrong. Adam Smith proved even before the United States was a thing that slavery made you poor, but the South saw another, no other option. They had self-interest. They wanted to keep their property. They wanted to keep their de facto aristocracy. And when they saw the North making a moral argument against that, that only hardened their resolve. And it was just this brutal, bloody history that as much as we talk about it, as much as we recognize it, still gets somewhat lost about how bad it really was. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. Okay, let's come back to the present tense because that's why you kind of went backwards in time. Talk about the Congress as we have it. Um, I think we're both realists. We understand this is going to be a contentious Congress. We have a split House and split Senate between two parties. We have a presidential election. I think there's going to be a lot of fighting, a lot of gridlock, and a lot of things not getting done. So I don't think they're going to learn the lessons. But if they wanted to learn the lessons, what would the lessons be here? 
The lessons would be that if even just a few people act purely on principle, that they, to a certain extent, are going to get something that they want or something that they think is right. Um, one example I used in the comments of Ordinary Times, um, look at Chip Roy. Chip Roy, people either love him or hate him. But regardless of what you think about Chip Roy, Chip Roy does what Chip Roy thinks is best because Chip Roy has certain moral values that he thinks that Congress and people in general should be pushing towards. And because he was so resilient in that, he got concessions from McCarthy that probably would not have been there otherwise that will alter the way that the House operates for the next two years. And I'm not saying that everybody should be Chip Roy or that Chip Roy was correct in this instance, but if you act in that sort of way and you think about higher principles as opposed to whatever will benefit me for the next five seconds as a representative, then you are more likely to accomplish what it really is that you want. And I think a lot of uh, what I like to call the grifter consortium um, has forgotten about that because they're only thinking about the next 10 minutes. They're only thinking what will get them that Fox News head or that lucrative fundraising deal tomorrow, but they're not thinking about what's going to happen a year, two years, five years, 10 years down the line. And that harms not only the country, it obviously harms the country, but it, it harms them too. It ironically ends up being destructive for their self-interest. Yeah, Gary and Frankel, we've been beating up on our GOP friends a little bit. Let's talk about our Democratic friends for a second. Look, they looked good by just sitting there and being quiet and letting all this chaos go on, right? So they, they got an easy layup here. What lesson are they learning as they watch this contention? Because, look, they've, they're they going to have a good look at getting the House back, especially if this is chaotic for a couple of years. What lesson are they learning as they're sitting here? Do you think they should take away from all this? The lesson that they're learning, and I think this is a lesson from um, Van Buren, who I've also written quite a bit about, um, as opposed to John Quincy Adams, but I think that they're learning that party unity is important above all else, and that you can have your debates, you can have your internal squabbles, but they need to be uh, behind closed doors. And once you get to that public-facing area, wherever it is, if it's on TV, if it's within the House, if it's on C-SPAN, whatever, that they have to represent a united, cohesive front, because otherwise they look just as bad as the Republicans do right now. Yeah, and Nancy Pelosi did a really good job of that in her two terms. We'll see how Hakeem Jeffries does helming the ship over there. Gary and Franco always love having historical perspective on modern events, giving us a little bit of, you know, not a guide, but some guardrails on how to approach this stuff going forward. Let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with you, what you got going on. You're another one of our great Young Voices contributors. You do a lot of writing on history and education and things like that. Let folks know how to keep up with you until we get you on Herd Tell again, my friend. Absolutely. I'm most active on Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. Yep. Gary and Frankel, his friends call him Gary. We just call him a good friend. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yes, sir. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. 
At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.